welcome to the latest episode of our podcast series for advisors considering the independent space. Today's episode is looking at M&A from the seller side of the table, part two of a two-part series. It's a conversation with Jeff Concepcion, founder and CEO of Stratos Wealth Partners and special guest host, Lewis Diamond. I'm Mindy Diamond, and this is Mindy Diamond on Independence. podcast is available on our website, diamond-consultants.com and on advisorhub.com, as well as Apple Podcasts and other major podcast platforms. If you are not already a subscriber and want to be notified of new show releases, please subscribe right on your favorite podcast platform or on the episode page on our website. And if you find the content in this series to be useful and know others who could benefit from it, please feel free to share it widely. In our last episode, we spoke with Carl Heckenberg of Emigrant Partners about the role that an emerging new breed of acquirers like Emigrant plays in the life cycle of RIA firms. That is, as a growth and advisory partner, rather than just a monetization or succession option. And it was this partnership that was the real draw for Jeff Concepcion, founder and CEO of the $14 billion Stratos Wealth Partners based in Ohio. So much so that on April 1st, even in the midst of an extremely volatile market and worldwide pandemic, Emigrant and Stratos forged their union. For many RIA firms considering a sale, taking on a capital partner means giving up a level of control or ownership. For Jeff, while yes, it meant giving up some control and ownership, he felt he had much more to gain by the transaction. Because as he sees it, the deal was more about gaining thought leadership than capital, that is bringing emigrants' talented team to the table who can help Stratos think about growing and evolving the business. And of course, Carl spoke just as highly about the amazing business that Jeff and his team built and how they rapidly achieved scale, establishing the firm as a market leader. It's an incredible story for sure. Jeff grew the business from zero, yes, zero, to over $14 billion under management in just 12 years. How did they do it? While their own unique blend of organic and inorganic growth is at the root of their success, Jeff says it's also about sticking to their core values and never sacrificing quality for growth. It's an approach that's also resulted in Stratos landing the number one recruiting firm spot under the LPL umbrella in nine of the last 10 years, attracting some of the top advisors and teams in the industry. And even more telling is the fact that they attracted the attention of an investor like Emigrant. Given Lewis Diamond's experience in working with firms that are exploring M&A options, I've asked him to lead this conversation with Jeff to get his perspective on M&A from the seller side and to guide us through how Stratos achieves such amazing growth. So I'll turn the mic over to Lewis and let him take it from here. Thank you so much, Jeff, for joining us today. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks for the invite, Lewis. Very good. You are an industry rock star. You're someone that 
I know I've been watching from from afar for a while. So it's really gratifying that you've taken time out of your busy schedule to join us today. From one rock star to another, I'll accept that. Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate it. So let's start at the top. Would you mind telling us a bit about your background and how you came to launch Stratus Wealth Partners? Yeah, I'm happy to do that. I I like to say that I'm entrepreneurial. I believe that I am, but I wasn't entrepreneurial enough to leave the firm that I had been with for 23 years. I was actually thrown out and fired from the shop that I had started with. A different story for another day, but it was that release that kind of led me to the notion that I really wanted to do something different and build my own shop and really have more control over the environment and the deliverables and seize this opportunity for what seemed to be a continually growing drive towards independence. And that happened in late 2008, and we opened our doors in early 09. Where did you work before? What was your background, and how did you get the quote-unquote training to begin working on Stratos along with your new, with your initial partners? Yeah, so I started off as a financial advisor, a financial planner in Cleveland, Ohio, and I was in a leadership training program. So I was relocated from Connecticut to Cleveland. They were one of three cities because I was very young going into the program. They wanted to put me into one of their best leaders. So it was New Jersey, Cleveland, or Detroit. And I was sort of playing a game with them that I would go visit all three, but I would only consider going to New Jersey because having grown up in Connecticut, it was close to home. I was very close with my folks and I went to Cleveland and Detroit. And both of the folks liked me and I liked them. And the folks in our leadership development program said, hey, look, somebody's already going to be unhappy. If they don't get you, we're not going to complicate this thing and send you to New Jersey as well. And I was like, holy cow, I didn't want to tell them that's too far from my folks. I don't want to go out to the Midwest. So I had to choose and I chose to come to Cleveland, which I was very, very grateful. So I, was, I began a practice as a financial advisor and then a program to eventually lead and run an office and then multiple offices and then a state and then multiple states and, and so on. Got it. So so you had your training wheels, let's say, um, at your prior place before starting Stratos. So can you tell us a little bit about the value proposition? Tell us what Stratos Wealth Partners is all about. Take it from the top. Yeah, I think the the easiest way that I would say it is people, when they want to go independent, many times they don't really know fully what that means. Independent to me for advisors who are kind of the breakaway brokers, so to speak, that you guys work so closely with and that we do often as well. Independence means they don't want mandates coming from different business lines inside of a wirehouse or a bank that they need to participate in X amount of lending or credit or all these different business loans. They want to kind of build the firm the way they want to build it, serve clients the way they want to serve them, and really have control over their destiny. Independence generally does not mean that they want to be responsible for HR, real estate, regulatory and compliance related issues, benefits, billing, on and on and on, you know, 15 or 20 things that when they thought about independence, they didn't think about these things. They thought about other things. So the premise of our model was how do we allow you to be independent where you've wanted to and supported perhaps where you need to be supported? And that was kind of the outcropping of our shop. What do independent broker dealers and custodians do and what don't they do? And how can we fill in that gap? So you have all the freedoms that you want, but in some ways you feel like you've kind of got support or resources or capabilities that you might have had in a different environment, not necessarily the environment that you came from, but in a supported type of environment. It was crossing over independent where people wanted to be and supported where they needed to be. That was sort of the baseline premise of the value prop. And when you started the firm, was this a gap in the market that you saw? And this was something that you were passionate about 
about providing to the advisors across the country? Yeah, it was it was undoubtedly a gap, I think, for a couple of reasons. So there were independent broker dealers there, and it's all the names that you, know, you and I know today that are doing a great job, but those levels of support weren't there. And where there were promises of support, again, not I don't want to be harsh, I don't want to say that they were empty promises, but it's one thing to say that I have a technology offering or a, a transitions and repapering team to find out that those that's half a body or one body. So the analogy I give now that I've moved from Connecticut to Ohio and I'm a Midwestern guy now, if you had two Ford F-150 pickup trucks and they were sitting in the parking lot and you're 100 yards away, they generally look the same. But when you lift up the hood of most independent firms and or super OSJs or hybrid OSJs, oftentimes you find a sort of a moped engine sitting there under the hood. And I believe in ours, at least our goal has been to have an eight-cylinder engine in there that can really drive the ship and deliver value and really provide true support. So it's not that there wasn't the premise, but I think that maybe it was hard to deliver on that promise of support. And we and our goal was to really try to deliver in a much more tangible way. And that's what we continue to strive to do every day. And this was back in 2009 when there was maybe one hundredth of the competition and support that's available today for either prospective independent advisors or advisors that are already independent and looking for support. So I would imagine that the environment today and who you see as your quote unquote competitors is probably a lot different. I think so. And I think, you know, we've worked hard to evolve and other shops are evolving. And the problem is when you have any modicum of success, right? If your business is starting to do okay, you can kind of get comfortable and think, hey, we've got a good model and you know we've grown and we've become profitable. But the reality of it is that you know if you're not evolving, someone will pass us by as quickly as we may have had the opportunity to pass by some of our early competitors. So the key is just not to stagnate. So technology platforms and deliverables, listening to our partners tell us where their pain points are, thinking about things that they're not thinking about. So it might not be a pain point. It just might be, how do you differentiate yourself in the marketplace? What services could you or should you be adding? And it's the whole concept that you know Mark Tiburgeon talks about, that there hasn't been a lot of fee compression. So advisors, by and large, are still charging their 1%, but they're just required to do a lot more for it. And if they're not doing a lot more in the way of services and experience and touch, they might then start to suffer some fee compression. So how do we support the advisors in areas where they tell us they need help? We do a lot of that by listening. And then how do we think about things that maybe they're not thinking about that they might want or need to do in order to continue to be relevant against their competition? So Jeff, can we take a step back and walk us through who is your broker dealer? Who do you use for custody? And how many advisors are part of your independent network? Absolutely, Lewis. So when we started, it was a pretty straightforward model where LPL was both the broker dealer and the RIA. And not long thereafter, we realized that there might be some benefits and some flexibility that could be derived by us forming our own RIA. So we became what was called at that time a hybrid. LPL continued to be the broker dealer. They also continue to be the custodian, but we formed our own RIA. And as we talk and think about evolution and listening to our partners, they wanted to have access to different solutions, different platforms, which eventually led us to add over time Fidelity, Schwab, and TD Ameritrade. So currently we have offices in roughly 100 cities. We have roughly 300 advisors that are leveraging LPL as our broker-dealer and then LPL, Fidelity, Schwab, and TD as the four custodians. 
Excellent. And how much in collected assets is the network managing? Depends on what the market does today. We've had a lot of volatility over the last month or two. <laughs> I would say that you know, we're, we're sort of floating somewhere between 14 and 15 billion in assets, which would be a combination of our asset management business, Fundamentum, Stratos Wealth Advisors, which is an RIA slash IAR only for advisors who've dropped their sevens, and then Stratos Wealth Partners, which is the hybrid for folks who continue to carry a Series 7 and do advisory business. That is pretty incredible, having started in 2009, an incredibly perilous time, and to be able to grow at that sort of rate um, in a very condensed period of time. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, it's a work in progress. Every day we're telling our story and trying to deliver better to the folks who've aligned with us, who we're extremely grateful to, and then look for you know new opportunities to align. It's kind of funny. People say, geez, how did you end up in all these places and where are you targeting? We're not targeting anywhere. We end up opening up offices. We're just where we meet great people that we think we can enjoy and collaborate with. So some of the markets in were, were, would be very obvious and others, people are like, how did you end up? We just, we met some great people and that's kind of how the growth continues. It's not a brilliant answer, but it's really more about a fit and an alignment than us wanting to open in certain cities. Absolutely. It's great. So let's shift gears a little bit and to probably a little bit more of an unpleasant topic. You'd mentioned all the market volatility and can't record a podcast now without at least mentioning the COVID crisis, which has really enveloped all of society and really impacted everyone personally and professionally. That said, on March 31st, during probably the most volatile month on, on record, it was announced that Immigrant Partners, which is a minority investor into RA firms, made a minority investment into Stratos. Um, I definitely want to get to that. But first, let's just talk a bit about how Stratos has managed through the crisis. How did your days change personally? How did your firm's communication strategies change with your advisor clients and also your advisors with their clients? And have you seen your business change as a result of the crisis? Yeah, it's, a, it's really a great question. And I, as I talk to peers around the industry, I think we've all learned a lot. And it seems like it was a lifetime ago. It's really only a couple of months ago. And the first visual that comes to mind is I was in my garage and it was raining outside. And I don't know why it's just outside sort of pacing. And I decided I wanted to call 100 of our top partners. It took me three days to do it. And I was sort of stopped calling at a certain time of the day, the East Coast. And I'd moved to Central. Then I'd moved to Mountain. And I'd moved to the West Coast, to Pacific. And just kind of checking in on them and how they were doing and we're very, very blessed and fortunate to have a fairly deep IT team. So with somewhere between seven and 800 partners, affiliates, our internal stakeholders, employees, our partner offices, employees, we had somewhere between seven and 800 users that we had to move remote in a fairly quick time frame, And we did that quite well. That's a tribute to Jacob Stewart and his team who runs our technology group. It's also a function, what I've talked about earlier with the two Ford F-150s, we don't have a part-time or an outsourced IT solution. I think we have eight dedicated folks there. That's all they do. So they really deployed quite well. And in those conversations, advisors were stressed because I think this is different than prior market volatility. We've all lived through many of those, but this time you had the health scare and the social distancing as well as the impact on the market. So people were anxious. One thing that happened that's unique and different, our advisors have the lion's share of them have always had a little bit of a, a wall that they've put up between them and us and their clients. And this time, I think many of them allowed that wall to deteriorate. And the message that they shared is that, you know, we 
in our one or few to many being an advisor or two and their staff are trying to reach out really proactively to, in many cases, several hundred clients. And that was creating a strain. So one of the things that we did to respond and provide the, the term I'll use as air cover is we started doing a call every single day at noon that I would lead and our chief investment officer of Stratus and our chief investment officer of Fundamentum, our asset management business, one or both of those folks would join me on each of these calls. And the issue wasn't that there was a lack of information. We felt that there was a lack of understandable information and just sort of breaking down what's happening, what does this mean, how should you be thinking as a an end investor, and how should you be interacting with your advisor to navigate all this noise and craziness in the markets. So that was one interesting outcropping is connecting sort of deeper with our advisors, having almost a direct connection. We had a thousand phone lines every day and we did this for probably a month and a half. We just stopped a week or 10 days ago because I think we're sort of in a new norm now and maybe the anxiety hasn't subsided, but it's decreased. And then it was also all the ways that we interacted amongst ourselves as partners internally, internal stakeholders, employees, business units, business groups, so lots of sort of uh, new experiences as a result. That's, that's fantastic. And it seems like as the platform, the organization that many advisors lean on for their day-to-day, that you played a truly invaluable role in not just supporting these advisors during the crisis, but freeing up their time so that they can do what was most important to them and giving them a comforting resource. So congratulations on being there and also being so proactive in your approach to handling your clients. Yeah, it's it's interesting, right? Because it seemed like it could be overkill to potentially do it every day. But if you think back, again, it was only a couple months ago, so much was changing every day and so much of the news was interesting. And then at some point we said, we've been doing that for a couple of weeks that we think that there's still a place for it, but we just reduced the cadence. And we were just only doing it at, as the market opened on Monday, as it closed on Friday. And again, the calls were at noon every day. And at some point we felt like we had shared what we had to share. And if we happen to retest lows, which again, the topic for another day possibly, but we could reinstitute the calls, but they kind of ran their course. We also were having go-to meetings with each of the departments, which was really, really nice. A chance for me to see the faces of 60 or 70 folks that are internal stakeholders and chat with them and hear what's going on and some silly stuff. One of them turned into a talent contest and it was really, really funny actually that they were each performing in exchange for a gift for their charity. Nobody wanted to do it. But when they said, oh, you're writing checks to charity, I said, sure. All of a sudden of the seven people on the call, everybody wanted to participate and share a talent. So it's just a lot of fun little ways to connect and then, you know, retaining people. We told them we're committed, whatever we need to do to making sure that no jobs get eliminated, no one's hours get reduced, and the business development team will work extra hard to backfill to ensure that we're protecting you. You've been there for us. Now we're going to be there for you. I think that message was well received. So just you're trying to do whatever you can to make sure you're taking care of your own. Right. Excellent. And let's go back to the Emigrant Partners deal. It was all over the headlines back um, end of March, early April. And honestly, it was a very welcome distraction from reading about market volatility and where the industry was headed. In the episode that is airing prior to this one, we were fortunate to have Carl Heckenberg, the head of Emigrant Partners, share the buyer's perspective of the deal. So I think it'll be really instructive to get your viewpoint, Jeff, as the quote unquote seller. What was your motivation behind doing the deal with Emigrant, especially at this at this part of your growth cycle? You know, it's a great question, Lewis. I think there was a realization probably around a year ago that 
my focus was just really becoming sort of the best version of ourself. And what's a little bit of a limiting factor is kind of, and it's a blessing at the same time, a lot of the team has been intact. We know each other. We're comfortable with each other. We've been together for a while. There hasn't been very much change, which is a good thing, but it also can be limiting to the extent that there's you know, not this sort of new disruptive ideas. When Lou Camacho came on board, that was really a breath of fresh air. He thought a little bit differently and he was outspoken in the sense that he wasn't, he was comfortable enough to share his ideas quite quickly and kind of challenge the system a little bit. We've had an external advisory board at times and we found them capable of doing the same, but we wanted people who are really more closely aligned with us that could sit at the table. So I would say it was less driven by capital and more driven by the fact that we really wanted to challenge ourselves to be the best firm that we could. And then, of course, the fact that the markets had done well, it wasn't a bad thing you know, to take some chips off the table. It wasn't a bad thing to have access to capital to further accelerate our growth and maybe to stop being as conservative. I think this blue collar mentality and the hard work that's driven us to where we are today has also been a limiting factor the fact that you could have offices in as many places as we did and grow at the pace that we did and essentially have almost no debt uh, is probably odd. It struck people as odd as we went through this process with Liz Nuzvold and Silverlane that we could have grown that way without having any leverage. So part of that maturing process is, okay, we're a sound and stable business. Intelligent business owners use a little bit of leverage. They push themselves outside of their comfort zone. And we thought that the right partner could help us to do that as well. And do you have a list of uses for this capital? Um, last year, we, we had Rob Nelson, who's the CEO of North Rock Partners, on our podcast show. And it was a couple of months after uh, he and his firm had, had done a deal with Emigrant Partners as well. And he mentioned the desire to use their capital to ramp up mergers and acquisitions or inorganic growth, and also to leverage some of their internal family office capabilities. I'm curious, especially specific to Emigrant, what sort of capabilities are you going to leverage from them? And do you have a, a wish list now that you have um, a fresh base of capital to use? Yeah, so uh, absolutely. And and just kind of going back to the transaction, because you know we've invested in dozens and dozens of businesses. In fewer cases, they've been direct investments by the enterprise, by us. In more cases, we were guiding our partner offices on tuck-ins. So I've had a fair amount of participation, but as you can imagine, this was far more complex and far more involved just because of the size and scope. And what probably strikes me or shocks me is the most unusual thing about that whole transaction is how easy it was. And it, I think it's really a testament to culture and fit. As we're going through these conversations, lots of significant items that they had that needed to be addressed and that we had that needed to be addressed. And it was never contentious and it was always just extremely easy. And I think I hope it's a cultural testament to who Emigrant is and Carl and his team and Howard and how they operate and to us and our team. I've always felt this way. When you've got a relationship where both parties are fair and balanced and I want you to come out of this thing feeling at least as good as I do and both parties think that way, it just it really shocked me at how he, and, it, and frankly, the lawyers on both sides almost use the term bizarre that things were just so fluid and so relaxed and everybody you know, just working together so collaboratively. And I think I knew at that time that we were very fortunate that we picked a great, great group because it was confusing. When we came down to the end, there were two firms that we absolutely loved and thought the world of. Uh, we ended up obviously working with Emigrant. And I think as we got to the nitty gritty and the, and the documents and all the details, we knew that we had, had picked well. So kind of segueing into 
uh, now that that transaction has taken place, I think there are probably a couple of key areas, platform and technology. I think in the last year or two, we've done a lot to really shore that up and feel proud and good about how we show up from a tech standpoint. And we're going to continue to do that with this, what we call advisor hub, this dashboard that we've built, that's both a, a personal and business dashboard for every application that an advisor could want and use. And it's that connectivity and sort of evolution of that. So in platform and technology, we want to continue to invest people. Absolutely. Because it's a people-driven business. It's a talent-driven business. And the more quality people and talent we have, the better business will be. I always tell our partners in coaching settings that they're only as good as the weakest link. And if you have four or five people on your team or 64 or 65 people, I still think that's true. And then probably the most obvious is on the M&A side. There have been a lot of bumps, you know, and we're, we're fighting through an interesting time in the markets. But I think we have been good stewards to be well prepared to do that. And there are other firms that are some great businesses that might be less prepared to do that, number one, or number two, just not have the resolve to fight through these times because they've been through it a half dozen times before. So I think on the M&A front, you're seeing lots of people reevaluating their goals for 10 years. Life has been easy. The market's been cooperative. And now that it's less easy, I think folks are maybe revisiting, should this is this a time where I should really be thinking more about succession? So I think that's how we're hoping to leverage this new partnership. So it sounds like even in spite of this crisis, you're still pretty bullish on M&A and your ability to transact in the future. Yeah, very much so. I mean, it would be unfair to say that it's not scary to think about, you know, the health implications and people's families and a lot of the challenges that have taken place and the markets, which I don't think we've seen the end of. It's been super pleasant for a while now that we've traded in a tight band, but I I just can't imagine that the markets have fairly priced all the underlying turmoil that still exists out there. So it's not that we're not thoughtful and that we're not concerned and that we're not being realistic. But that being said, I do think that we've run a business that's been fiscally responsible. I think we've aligned with a partner that's strong and knows the space well. And we're extraordinarily aggressive and hardworking on the business development side. So I think kind of the combination of those things means that as we come through this, that will be a bigger business, a better business, and probably a larger business as a result of some of the tuck-ins that will take place. Fantastic. I completely agree. Deals take an excruciating amount of work, and it's not for the faint of heart. And firms and business owners get really one shot at selling their business. So whether there's a crisis or not, we're firm believers that the right deals will still get done. Of course, valuations and terms might change, but advisors and business owners that were struggling with some things prior, whether it was scale or lack of a succession plan, likely still have that same motivation. And I would agree that a business like Stratos, especially with your fresh pool of capital, could be in a pretty ideal spot to make the most of this crisis. On the topic of valuation, um, what's probably on most people's minds is that your deal was announced right in the height of this crisis. Of course, deals take many, many months to accomplish, many legal reviews and negotiations, and even just finding the right fits takes, takes a very long time. So how did Stratos and Emigrant justify moving forward when clearly in a couple-day period, the valuation must have changed pretty dramatically? 
Yeah, it's a great, great question. And, you know, it's funny. It was on our mind. It was on their mind, but we weren't bringing it up and they weren't bringing it up. And finally, I said to our team, look, we're, you know, three or four or five days away from closing. It's an issue, right? If they they don't bring it up, then I will. I want you to prepare a sheet. And on this sheet, I want you to identify the partners who have joined us from December 15th to March 15th. And I want to know what the size of their books was and the assets that they brought over, because I think there's a story to be told. So I looked at that little one page sheet and I don't think I had that sheet in my hand probably more than 48 hours. And when we were on one of the calls and, and Carl and his team said, you know, not for nothing and not that it's entirely relevant, but can you kind of give us an idea? How are you guys faring and what do your assets look like? And, you know, cause we know what they looked like a couple of weeks ago. And the story that I told and the analogy that I gave is, the stock market had a backhoe and it was digging a hole continuously and taking away assets. But one of the attributes of Stratus is this business development engine that we've built under Charles Shapiro, who runs business development for us nationally. And we had, I think it was seven or eight or nine new partners that it had joined during that time. And as that backhoe was taking assets away, these eight or nine new partners with their shovels were backfilling that hole and really softening the blow. So that hole was nowhere near as deep or as wide as it would have been without these new partners that were adding assets. And our assets had dropped, but not that much. And I think that was a reinforcement for them that even during this time, And again, not that we're not susceptible, not that our revenues wouldn't be affected, but that we had a a mechanism through business development to buffer that. They were comfortable and things proceeded as planned, which I think is a tribute to them. And one of the reasons that we chose them is that they have such a deep outlook. If If I'm looking to partner with a business for the next 10, 15, 20 years, it matters to me what's happened in the last 30 days, but not so much. Yeah, it seems like the exact attribute that drew emigrants to you in the first place and probably made many, many firms across the industry extremely interested in partnering with you, that was the saving grace. Uh, it, was, it was the fact that you had a scalable platform and one that has a business development engine attached that enables you to not just fill in the, the, the hole with your, with your backhoe analogy, but also to continue growing and to take advantage of a crisis like this. Exactly right. Yeah, it was. And the timing was great, you know, that we had had a pretty strong quarter leading into that. And, and and they tend to be generally fairly consistent, but they're not always the same. So it was really good that that was kind of a solid, normalized quarter from a business development standpoint that, again, helped to backfill that hole and gave everybody at the table confidence that we were good to move forward. Definitely. So when the deal process kicked off, you mentioned that you worked with Liz Nesvold and her team at Raymond James Silver Lane. What did your quote unquote process look like without, without naming names, what were the attributes of firms that you wanted to engage with? How many firms did you, did you consider? And can you give us a preview of just what the initial part of your deal process uh, looked like? Yeah, absolutely. And again, this was fairly new to me, right? This whole concept of creating a deck and a booklet to kind of tell our story. And it was a relatively short story in that it wasn't a firm that had been around for decades. At the time we had built the deck, we had just crossed past our uh, 10th anniversary and kind of assembling the financials. And again, from a finance perspective, we've done a good job. We know kind of the growth and the trajectory and everything else. But as we put that down on paper, it was fairly impressive to think that the revenues and the profitability and the assets and all these things had so consistently grown and at a pretty nice trajectory or tangent. So we developed the book went through some conversations with Liz and her team who knew our business already just from you know our prior relationship with her on our advisory board talked about what we were looking for and what we were not 
What we weren't looking for is uh, regardless of what price anyone was willing to pay, we just would not do a majority transaction. We wanted a minority transaction that we thought was fairly priced, someone who could help catalyze growth from both a economic capital standpoint and an intellectual capital standpoint. And if any one of those things was missing, we would just wait and, and pass. So Liz's advice to people who are participating is the biggest challenge you have here is not who you're competing against. It's just a deal not getting done if we can't check off each of these boxes because there wasn't necessarily a need to do something. There was a desire to. And I think I think we probably had 12 or 13 initial meetings. I can tell you what shocked me more than anything is just my naive vision of what these firms would look like. Some were quite sharp and others were quite not. And it surprised me to think that these folks that I sort of put up on a pedestal thinking about how sophisticated and articulate and it was certainly the case with some and very much not the case with others that just were not impressive and some that were actually, frankly, quite amusing. And But at the end of the day, we were pretty quickly able to shrink the group down to what we felt were two or three options very, very quickly. And it surprised me how quickly. Now, from that point, it got a lot more complicated as you start to really develop relationships and and, an affection and an interest and chemistry with a couple of partners, it gets much harder to sort of narrow it at the end. But that's kind of what the process looked like overall. And were were most of these minority investors that made the initial list, were they private equity firms or what types of organizations were they? Yeah, I would say uh, there were a couple of strategics. There were a couple of patient capital, family office, and then probably two-thirds would have been traditional private equity. And the funny thing is, if people kind of like the deck and they like the book, even though it says minority only, several came in, more than a few, with majority offers, thinking that if the numbers look great and, you know, that maybe we would change our minds, but that was never an option. I feel too bullish and, frankly, I'm having too much fun and enjoy what I'm doing too much not to be able to be at the helm. So that was a limiting factor with some of these folks who really liked the business, but wouldn't do a deal that was a minority deal. Did, did you have any thoughts on the typical, I would say, shorter time horizon that private equity investors have before they look to realize a return in their investment versus more of a long-term or even in some cases, permanent capital provider like Emigrant? Yeah, very much so. My mindset, I just feel a great deal of loyalty and indebtedness to our own partners here. When Emigrant became our partner, my nature to send a note to Howard and to Carl and say, however hard I've worked before, I intend to work even harder. I don't exactly know what that means, but everybody always has another gear because they place that level of confidence and I wanted them to know that I didn't take it lightly. So to me, when someone had sort of a short-term time horizon, not feeling like that would be a right fit for myself or for our firm in general, it was easy to dismiss those because I think you end up with goals not aligned. You make decisions very, very differently as a public company when every 90 days you kind of live and die by your earnings. You make decisions differently if you're affiliated with a firm that's maybe looking at a four or five-year window, that's the world, versus a firm that's thinking about 10 and 15 and 20 years down the road. So that alignment was super important, and that's what kind of drove us to the universe of potential partners becoming limited quite quickly, that and chemistry. Excellent. Thank you very much for popping up the hood of your uh, of your F-150 and showing us a little bit about your deal process. Absolutely. I think this is a good segue into dissecting the Stratos strategy. Most advisors who are going independent for the first time, and certainly I would say most that already run independent businesses, have a really strong desire to 
recruit or acquire to accelerate growth. That said, you and I both know it's really hard to pull off and nearly impossible for many firms to do one deal, not to mention to grow from zero to 15 billion within a 11 to 12 year time span like Stratos did. What does the Stratos value proposition or pitch sound like to advisors that you're courting and that ultimately end up joining your organization? Yeah, so I think you're absolutely right about the fact that it's not easy to grow. And I, it's just kind of humorous that I meet a lot of really, really nice people. I mean, I'm, I schedule every moment of the day from 7 a.m. till 7 p.m. I don't work on Sunday. I try not to work on Sundays anymore. I, I don't do it often. But every Saturday morning from 7 or 7.30 until noon, catching up from all the chaos of the week. And I don't have to tell you, you guys are as successful as any firm in the industry on the business development side. It's a grind. You know, you have to have a good story. You have to tell it well. And then you have to be extraordinarily persistent. And every day, every week, I meet people who had this notion that it wasn't that hard. So they built an office for themselves and they had four empty offices. And six years later, there are still three empty offices because business development isn't that easy. And we chose to probably take an even harder path. And that harder path was selling a value prop. If you sell payout, it can kind of sort of sell itself, right? But when you say, no, we don't pay out that much. We've got great competitive payouts, but they're not going to be as high as some of our peers. So if your goal is to extract the last penny out of your current revenue stream, we're probably not a good fit. But here are two or three great, great organizations with good people that we'd suggest we'd suggest you talk to. If on the other hand, you want to get a really, really fair payout for your revenue stream and have someone who can really support your business and help you grow and help you be more thoughtful and deliver experiences and resources to you and your clients. And by the way, hold us accountable to make sure that we're doing it well and to explain to you what those things are. If you're interested in those things, in growth and service and experience, and then you probably would want to hear more about who we are. And that's kind of the way we start the conversation, by challenging them to not talk to us if the only thing that matters is payout, because it's going to be good, but there'll be others that are higher. Definitely. And without giving up your secret sauce, how does another business owner drive their firm to become the next Stratos if there is a next Stratos? You know, I think part of it's investment, right? I mean, it's that whole notion that we talk about often of an advisor versus a CEO. If somebody wants to grow, they've got to invest in their business. They've got to invest in their value prop. They have to invest in business development, partnering with great firms like yours. I mean, there's a cost to meet talented people. So if you really want to grow, you have to develop a value prop, be willing to invest in it, and it cannot be a part-time job. I can't be running a practice with 150 clients and think that in 8 or 18% of my time, I'm going to be a rock star from the business development standpoint. You have to sleep it, breathe it, eat it, and live it 24-7. You don't have to do that to bring on a team or two, but if you really want to grow, I don't think that it can be done part-time. So I think it's a grind. You have to have a great story and you have to work really, really hard. I see it the exact same way. It, you can't make recruitment or business development a part-time vocation because there's just too much that goes into it. And ultimately, you need a lot of at-bats. And ultimately, I don't know what your success rate is, but probably one or two out of 10 at-bats really end up uh, in a home run. So I, I would agree that you need to shift your attention in a way that if M&A or recruitment is critical to the future of the organization, that either you as the CEO or a really talented team behind you spends a lot more than half their time on focusing as a strategy. 
Yeah, and I th- I think you can grow, you know, relatively quickly through payout. The question is, will people be happy? Can you serve them well? Is there a value proposition? And can you make money? There was a time where, you know, if Bob pays out 90, then Susie's business model was to pay out 91, and Tom's business model was to pay out 92, and on and on until you got people going up to 100% payouts, charging a flat fee for compliance. And, you know, no surprise, it's really, really hard to provide a good experience. And I didn't want to grow for the sake of growing. I wanted to grow by really treating the people well and serving them well and being accessible and having resources and not apologizing if we could make a reasonable profit along the way. So growth for the sake of growth is out there, but growth with quality and growth with profitability, I think that's not the easiest thing to pull all those together. I completely agree. And it's it's not a big secret that many OSJs, offices of supervisory jurisdiction or hybrids in some circles, many of them are just not very profitable. They could be cash cows to the owner or owners for a period of time, but they typically don't have terribly much monetizable enterprise value. As if they're battling on payout, they might have a lot of assets and a lot of top line revenue. But if 90 plus percent of the dollars go out the door, there's not a lot of cash flow available for an investor or a buyer. So you commented on this a little bit, but aside from not competing on payout, more competing on your value proposition, what else would you suggest to business owners that would like to build independent networks um, in order to build a business that's not just profitable to the partners, but also can be built in a way that attracts the attention of one of the most sophisticated and well-regarded investors in the industry in a firm like Emigrant Partners? I think it's out there. I believe completely that someone could launch a firm today. And you know, sometimes our partners here get angry with me because that's secret sauce. I share it readily. If I if we lose a deal, then we we weren't intended to win it. Uh, but I've sort of helped people launch their businesses, and I've shared with them what we do on phone calls. Introduced people who are going to compete with us to our finance team to talk to them about how we solved billing issues or oversight issues. And it's that whole concept that you know there's plenty out there for everybody. So I think people can can build firms today that will compete with us and compete with many other large firms out there. That said, scale does matter. And it matters from the standpoint of resources. It matters from the standpoint of pricing and ability to invest. Uh, but I think that, that, you know, the model that we have uh, needs to continue to be broken by us and by others and reiterated and reinvented. So I just think it's be thoughtful about your model. Listen to what advisors need, the type of support that they're looking for. Invest in that value prop and be diligent. There's no way to supplement hard work. I love what I do so because there's no way in heck I could do it as, with the intensity or with the number of hours that I do every day if I didn't enjoy it. I love what we do and I love sharing ideas with people, not only people who would per- prospectively join, but people who would prospectively compete with us. Uh, but it's out there. And to your point, I think hard work and creating a value prop, selecting good partners to help you build a business, to help you grow the business, it's still very viable for folks to come out and compete today. Others would disagree, by the way. They say, oh, the biggest, and it's true. It's less, it's not consolidation. We're not experiencing consolidation. There are more independent firms, more RIAs year after year. What there is is concentration. Fewer and fewer firms are ending up with bigger and bigger pieces of the pie. But I still think that there's room for people to enter and compete well. Yep, definitely. And even in the last couple of years, we've seen a complete evolution of the OSJ business model, not just because there's, to your point, 
more and more RIAs that are popping up and trying to, to provide similar type services to be a, a, a platform with support for independent advisors. But we've also just seen, we've seen the scale players in the industry, broker dealers like yours, LPL Financial, Commonwealth, Raymond James, even seeing out of Schwab and Fidelity and Pershing and TD Ameritrade, we've seen that these scale players, service providers, et cetera, can oftentimes provide the commoditized services like compliance and supervision at scale and in a cheaper and more efficient manner. Can you share a little bit about how view adding value in Shadows' role in the marketplace today? Yeah, I think a lot of it, you know, if I think about some of the teams that are looking to join us as we speak, and some of them are quite sizable, it's unique, right? So if someone says, what's your deal? And you spit out a deal, you'll win one out of five or one out of six. But when someone asks the question, what's your deal? And you respond by saying, what's your need? Or what are your goals? That whole notion of being bespoke enough and customizable enough to understand that one team is really interested in how do they harvest the goodwill and the value inside of their business where someone else is interested in M&A, where someone else is interested in eliminating sort of the pain of having incredibly disjointed technology. So I think you're not going to out custodian the custodian or out broker dealer the broker dealers. What you have to do is identify service gaps of things that they don't do that you can facilitate. Some of that is in the trenches, right? So if you want to buy a business, if you're trying to partner with a bank, if we can be fit, most custodians or broker dealers aren't sitting in their conference rooms, our partner offices, conference rooms, helping them have these conversations on major transactions that could change the complexion of their firm. So part of it's the service, the intimacy, the personal connection, and kind of the customized bespoke solution of helping them fill a need that they have that's not as easily filled by broker dealers and custodians, which are generally back office, maybe to some extent middle office, but very few of which provide services front office. To me, front office is in your conference room, in your backyard, you know, participating in conversations. Right. I, I agree. And for those who may be weighing the option of starting their own RIA versus joining a platform like Stratos or some of the other competitors, um, can you explain a little bit about how how you would counsel someone to think about that? What advisors might be the right fits for Stratos? And how does partnering with Stratos compare to someone starting their own RIA? So I th- again, I think there's room for people to start their own firms. I think they just have to be thoughtful about what they're good at and where they want to spend their time and what skill sets that they have. When they say control, how much control do you really want to have? Or do you not want some guardrails for someone to say, look, you can do all these things, but these two things, you got to be careful because there are regulatory implications to that. So I think from a basis point, if the custodians speak openly and honestly, size matters. I don't know that someone should be starting their own RIA with 30 or 40 or $50 million in assets. I think it's a a tall order for all the stuff that needs to get done. At a couple hundred million in assets, it's not that they shouldn't do it. They probably can. The question is, what are the benefits? How much are you giving up in the way of revenue? And what are you getting back in exchange? So to speak very, very simply, if you have an advisor who's got a, a team who has a million and a half dollars in revenue and they set up their own RIA and they're going to get a million and a half coming in versus go somewhere where they're going to give up 10 points of that revenue or 12 points, whatever you know, the value prop happens to be, the question is for 180 grand, what can they buy on their own and what could someone else deliver to them? Can I do more with 60 or 70 employees with that 180 grand haircut that I would take? And can we help provide value and so on 
in a way that's going to catalyze more growth, give them more tools, give them more resources, or could they deploy that 180 grand better and more effectively on their own? So in part, it's what do you want to do? Do you have the size to even justify having that conversation about doing it on your own? And we've got advisors or teams who have a half billion or a billion dollars. They know the hats they want to wear, and then they know the hats that they don't. So part of its size, part of its sort of desire and focus, but there's certainly room for people to be building their own firm, their own RIA from scratch, even at relatively small levels. But I think when you get under a hundred million, I just don't see it as necessarily the most prudent from a pricing or a resource standpoint. Right. And objectively, other than the economics, which you laid out, and I think that's the exact right way to look at it. Are there any negatives or downsides from a control standpoint to joining someone's RIA versus having your own? I think there is. I think the negative is that there are some guardrails. I mean, an independent RIA can do a lot of things, but Lewis setting up his own RIA who might want to do a couple things that we couldn't get comfortable with. It could be some type of an outside business activity. It could be some type of a forming your own little alternative investment or private equity. You know, there are certain things that a firm would put guardrails up on that might constrain you to do that you would be able to do if you were entirely on your own. So I think there's tremendous flexibility, but not as much as doing something directly on your own. Uh, Two more questions for you before we wrap. With a network of 300 plus business owners and growing, and you're constantly meeting with prospective recruits are very active on the speaking circuit I think I've actually seen uh, at LPL conferences, you're kind of like Elvis there and have multiple sessions because they, you pack the room. You clearly have an incredible vantage point into what makes a great advisor and why many may stagnate a little bit. Can you share a little bit about what you see as the common attributes of the best advisors out there? Yeah, absolutely. And it's really a great question too, because you know there are lots of really, really good firms out there, but the ones that sort of continue to iterate and evolve and get better, uh, I think it's just sort of a passion and love for the business. And it probably sounds like an oversimplified answer, but they're not driven by adding another billion of assets, by increasing their income by an extra million dollars. They're driven by excellence. And it's this notion that they'll never want to be complacent because they sort of demand from themselves to find ways to do things better, deliver better services to clients, better experiences for their employees, more success for their enterprise. So I know in my own case, I mean, you know, it's funny, I talk to my folks and my mom's like, why do you work so hard? I said, because it's not work. I love what I'm doing, you know, but the reality of it is there's no reason to work that hard. An extra billion or two billion or five billion in assets really doesn't matter much. But what does matter to me, and I think what matters to the folks who really strive to continue to grow and improve, it's pride. They want to be proud of what they're doing. They want to feel like they're performing at their highest and best capability, and they don't ever want to be complacent or rest on their laurels. And I think that's a common theme in one form or another that you see in the firms or the advisors that continue to be best in class. So wrapping up here, uh, last question that we like to ask really every guest that comes on our show For advisors who may be considering independence for the first time, and really anyone who's considered change across the industry, can you share any words of wisdom or thoughts that you've learned along the way that may help these advisors make the best decision possible? Yeah, I think the short answer is, you know, just do it. Um, People recognize, many advisors recognize that when they cross that bridge, that there's a lot of good stuff there. 
in the independent world, but the fear and the trepidation of crossing and what's going to look like or what it could what could happen as I cross that bridge precludes some of them from doing it. And there's been such a migration. So they've seen other people from their firms. They've seen other people sometimes from their own offices make that transition. Anything that's worthwhile in life isn't easy. So making that transition, really controlling their own destiny, building the firm of their dreams, to me, it's just incredibly worthwhile. And I recognize it can be intimidating and daunting to make that change, but I think the payoff is so great in terms of the not only the economic payoff, but the autonomy and the freedom and the opportunity to express themselves as entrepreneurs. I would just encourage people, do all the planning that you need to do to build up the confidence, but cross that bridge because I think the independent space continues to redefine itself for a whole host of reasons is really a best in class experience for the advisor, for their team, and that fiduciary experience for clients. Well said. And also a quick shameless plug for your own podcast, the Evolving Advisor podcast. I've personally listened and there are some great insights that Jeff shares on how advisors can grow their business, um, his viewpoints on the industry. So for anyone who wants a little bit more Jeff's words of wisdom, I encourage you to subscribe. Thank you so much, buddy. It was great being here and I enjoyed it. Thanks, Jeff. Really appreciate it. Jeff shared some of his secret sauce for building a $14 billion enterprise brick by brick via recruiting. It's dedicated and strategic effort that requires a great deal of clarity to attract quality advisors in this highly crowded and competitive marketplace. And even though the COVID crisis has taken some wind out of the industry's M&A sales, Jeff demonstrated that for growth-oriented businesses and firms with diversified revenue streams, deals can and will still happen. I thank you for listening. And I encourage you to visit our website, diamond-consultants.com, and click on the tools and resources link for valuable content. You'll also find a link to subscribe for regular updates to the series. And if you're not a recipient of our weekly email, Perspectives for Advisors, click on the blog link to browse recent articles. These written pieces are an ideal way to stay informed about what's going on in the wealth management space without expending the energy that full-on exploration may require. Feel free to email or call me if you have specific questions. I can be reached at 908-879-1002 or these days on my cell at 973-476-8578 or always by email, mdiamond at diamond-consultants.com. Please note that all requests are handled with complete discretion and confidentiality. And again, if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share it with a colleague who might benefit from its content. And a special thanks to advisorhub.com for sharing this podcast with your viewers and subscribers. This is Mindy Diamond on Independence. Independence.